Hello, readers! My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is Bookin', brought to you by our new presenting sponsor, the North Carolina Book Festival. One of North Carolina's many amazing premier literary events. Happy to host North Carolina's many amazing authors, along with national and international bestsellers, prize winners, independent authors, and My guest today is Brian Allen Carr. He is an Aspen Words finalist and a Wonderland Book Award winner. His new book is Bad Foundations, which is published by our friends at Clash Books. Brian, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It is an honor to have you here. And uh, first, Brian, so you previously wrote this book opioid indiana uh and this book bad foundation uh takes place in and around indiana uh my wife went to graduate school in muncie indiana okay i was, I was in i was in muncie just uh about an hour ago <laughs> oh wow no way that's awesome yeah, um, yeah yeah and i lived in uh indianapolis when i was you know too young to remember um i have oh, friends cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have friends who played in a band in Bloomington that almost broke big before their singer uh, died. Um, what's going on in Indiana? Describe Indiana for our listeners in uh, Colorado, California, and North Carolina, largely, who are unfamiliar. And is there a secret artistic renaissance going on there? So I'd say there's definitely quite a few authors here. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are kind of up and coming. Some of them have sort of been a established there's a lot of writers who kind of moved through Kabe Akbar was at Butler for a while Roxanne Gay was at Purdue mm-hmm. um you know there's a lot of universities here mm-hmm. and the universities often of course hire hire authors um today it's uh it's cold we got a bunch of snow last night my kids uh school was canceled mm-hmm. um and uh, and I think that's kind of part of what makes this place an artistic, you know, hub a little bit. You know, I mean, there's definitely authors who've moved through here, John Green, Kurt Vonnegut. But I, I think the deal is, is that the seasons are extremely um, articulated uh, by weather here. And yeah. so in the winter, I think people kind of hunker down and uh, and work on their craft. <laughs> Maybe you can't do anything. So you got to, you know, go internal. Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, our school, my son's school was canceled here in Aspen the other day, which is unusual here for sure. Um, when when my wife, uh, before we were married, when she was in grad school at Ball State in Muncie, my favorite fact yeah. was they had, you know, a Chamber of Commerce pamphlet for people who wanted to tour Muncie, and they highlighted the Walmart there as one of their main attractions. And I think a few weeks after... Um, she graduated and moved away said walmart blew up because there was a, a meth lab in their photography lab um yeah so there's there's my muncie experience in a nutshell that sounds that sounds like an extremely uh muncie story to be honest with you muncie's all right i mean ball state's pretty cool they got yeah. the uh uh what's his name happy little accidents oh my lord uh mm. uh his, his little museum's there uh, uh ross why can't i remember his name anyway yeah i know, the guy, I know I would, yeah i know david letterman went there and um mm-hmm. they have a really cool uh bar called the harat that's modeled after the mead hall in beowulf um which mm-hmm. is yeah ball state she had a good experience there i don't mean to make yeah. fun of muncie i do so oh, really, i promise no yeah. 
Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, I, ma- I make fun of everywhere I've ever lived. I mean, it's, you know, it is what it is. Every place is kind of quirky and odd. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Brian, Um, you dedicate this novel, Bad Foundations, to Taylor Swift. Why? I mean, it's kind of a joke. And that's kind of, you know, my, my, uh, my daughters are big fans. And uh-huh. so I thought, uh, and, and, and she comes up, her music at least, a few times in the book. Uh-huh. Um, and then you know she's just super famous right now so I thought it was prescient and then I think maybe it was a little bit of a nod to my daughters I think maybe that's my way of maybe dedicating it to them without dedicating it to them does that make any sense it does um, yeah and yeah so uh, yeah, it's funny when we put it in there we knew it'd be something people would ask about too so I think it's a little bit of a gimmick I ain't gonna lie I, I like uh I like playing with stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a Mel Brooks fan. I, I like slapstick humor and stuff like that. So I just thought it, I thought too, it kind of conveyed a little bit of the tone of the book. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you know, if you're, if you open it up and see that and you think it's cheesy or hokey or dumb or you're infuriated by it, you're probably not going to like the book to be honest with you. Right. But if mm-hmm. you open it up and you get a chuckle out of the dedication, it it probably speaks to the spirit of the book a little bit, at least. Yeah, I would agree with that. Thank you so much. Um, this novel, Bad Foundations, largely uh, deals with crawl spaces. What is it about crawl spaces, Brian, that makes fodder for a good novel? Well, I think it... it um, one, I went and did this work, you know, to try to write this book. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I started from the from inside the metaphor, to be honest with you. But then mm-hmm. I think... You know, I've, of all the foundation types that there are for homes, crawl spaces are kind of the most unique because they're not very easily accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the grander metaphor is just about the home in general, right? Like where humans live. Um, and then two, it's about the industry and and about how um, uh, data-driven sales are affecting everything, you know, uh, in our country, like from, you know, foundation repair to opioid sales or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of trying to show how, you, you know, how those kind of things ha- have kind of been, uh, tied together. Um, so, so it's supposed to be a little bit of, of a look at like how we, how we buy things as a, as a, as a people in the United States and then how we live as a people of the United States. So, it's kind of that extended metaphor, I think. Yeah. Uh, as a brief aside, my old home in Raleigh, North Carolina, before I moved out here to Aspen, I had to go crawl into the crawl space to change the mm. air conditioning filter, like under mm. all these ducts and stuff. Yeah, it was. I, I hated doing that so much, but you know, identified with a lot of things in this novel as a result. Um, it's yeah, it's yeah. definitely a thing that scares people, right? Yeah. Like even. Like, I remember there was a horror novel called It Came from the Crawl Space or whatever. It's one of those things that kind of lives in the imagination. If you've ever had to be in one and you were in one that was a little bit, you know, not fun to be in, <laughs> it hangs with you. You know what I mean? It really does. It's like it's like if you've ever gone spelunking. I mean, you remember it every time you feel a little claustrophobic. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, uh, Brian. Um, why does our protagonist speak to an imaginary version of Mary Louise Kelly? And how many people, Brian, are walking around stuck on opportunities that were missed as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic? 
All right. Uh, I'm glad you asked about that. It, it kind of a couple of different reasons. One, she's sort of a stand in for God. Right. So um, I think a lot of people do this uh, all the time as they're growing up where they'll have these kind of like little conversations with people, either like after the fact. Mm -hmm. Right. You had some sort of conversation with a person and you thought of a witty comeback you know, 20 seconds too late. So you didn't use it. But then later on, you replay the conversation and maybe even say that tidbit out loud or whatever. Um, and I think to a certain extent, you know, uh, like you alluded to the, the sort of missed opportunity, I myself was supposed to be <laughs> interviewed by Mary Louise Kelly for the Aspen Awards um, finalist thing up in New York. But it, of course, was... Um, moved on mine i got to talk to esmeralda santiago who was also amazing to talk to no shade at that but it's just something that i think you know i i wasn't able to do it so um uh so it's it's definitely one of those things where you know if you miss an opportunity you replay it in your head but then too I, i've heard several people talk on podcasts about how they'll like talk to people who they listen to on podcasts or like just talk out loud or whatever and so i think I think it's kind of a universal thing too, where more and more people, especially if you're not, you know, around other folks, you're comfortable with kind of like doing what we used to consider insane and sort of talking out loud or talking to yourself. I don't, I doubt anybody used to think it was really insane, but people used to always say that to yourself, you know, are you talking to yourself? As long as you don't answer, you're not insane or something like that. You know, like it used to be a little uh, hokey joke that people would say in passing. So um but yeah i mean so i think it's kind of she's representative of a few things missed opportunity and then kind of a surrogate for 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 god and or a surrogate for for um just community in general yeah absolutely um and that's great you know you were a deserved finalist for the aspen book award we'd love to have you uh read for aspen words in aspen not read for aspen words in new york that would be fantastic maybe we can get anytime uh, i'll yeah i'd love to <laughs> yeah maybe we can get mary louise kelly on board as well who knows hey man that would be rad <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> absolutely well thank you so much um your protagonist cook says he could change jobs every year uh and he has taught he has sold cars um do you think cook and his generation are inclined to seek out careers in other words what is the difference between someone who lives to work and someone who works to live? Well, I think it's good fortune, right? I think that some people uh, live to work because they're able to do the job that they dreamed of having, or mm. it's just like, it's so, it's so bundled up in their identity or they have their dream job, right? Or like, you know, or for whatever reason, they're just geared up to be super competitive. So like maybe, you know, you could think, of course, of athletes who who live to work in some ways. Right. Like they they build their lives around that pursuit. I've seen salespeople that way as well. I've seen teachers that way as well, where their job and their identity is so intertwined that the one thing feeds the other and back and forth. Um, but I do think there is a sort of scenario and you hear it, uh, a lot of people bemoan it, but I think that these days, you know, people do feel more comfortable changing jobs. 
-hmm. which makes sense because it's easier to look for jobs. Therefore, it's easier to think about what would it be like if I was elsewhere than here, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then two, just the way things are structured these days, uh, changing jobs is one of the better ways to get an increase in earnings. Uh, Oftentimes, you're not locked into a particular job because you can't get vested for retirement. So why stay 30 years? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's all these different reasons why people move around more now. But two, it's 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 also, I just think, in our society anymore, one of the best ways that you can prove yourself is to be able to prove yourself fast, right? I can be quickly trained. I can learn new technology. I can change with the ever-changing times. And then so, right, if you're going to be geared up that way and that's how you're good at stuff, well, then the ultimate change would be like, well, what if I change my job, right? So, I mean, I, I think that we're just, we're designed as a, as a, as a society anymore to, to, um, to reward people who are able to quickly change. And I think that manifests itself in some ways through, through job changing, um, that said, there's some people who, you know, based on the type of job that they wanted, um, it's not typical that you would change, right? Like a lot of my professor friends will never leave the school they're at. And it makes sense. Right. Um, but to, but it's usually because they have the setup they want. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe that's part of it, too, is that most people <laughs> find me 10 satisfied people in a town and I'd be amazed. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, We're going to come back to some of these questions of identity later. But first, listeners, we are going to pause here for a brief word from Libro FM audiobooks. And then I will be right back with Brian Allen Carr. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Brian Allen, our author, Bad Foundations, which is published by our friends at Clash Books. Brian, in reference to our protagonist Cook's daughter and her reading habits, could you please draw a line from Sylvia Plath to Otessa Moshveg? Oh, gee, like chronologically? Well, you know, either that, yeah, sure. However you like, chronologically or similarities between the two, how one may progress from reading one to the other, et cetera. I'm... I'm not sure that I could do chronological right now because I think yeah. I'd mess it up. You know, <laughs> no I'd worries. be mad at myself. Like whatever I said, I'd go back and be like, <laughs> I forgot this person or that person. Yeah, understood. Um, but I would say, well, so realistically, that's a hundred percent true story. Mm-hmm. My oldest daughter read uh, the Bell Jar, 
Mm-hmm. And then she got loved it, got online, and then she was looking for you know similar books, and so she she got um, my year of rest and relaxation, and I think you know the tie into Taylor Swift even works there pretty well. I mean, I think there's uh, um, elements in each one of those works and or 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 artists where they where they critique patriarchy in some way. But then, too, I think the vibe is so similar between Plath and Moss Vegas, especially in that book. So, like, not in Eileen and not in, like, McLew or whatever, mm-hmm. but definitely there's a just certain kind of ennui maybe a little bit or a, a robust um, depression <laughs> maybe a little bit or uh, that, that dovetails pretty well between those two books. Man, I wish I could go chronologically from one to the next. That'd be kind of cool, you know. I'm sure you could draw some pretty decent lines. I don't know, though. I guess so. You'd have to ask a ask a Tessa, you know, like well, mm. how would she how would she draw herself back to those works if she even does? You know what I'm saying? Like she might not. I, I don't know. I've not read whether or not she has um uh uh, uh referenced that book as some kind of um not source material but maybe inspiration um but yeah i mean i, I think especially with that book atessa seems considerably like Plath in that book but not like, like i said not eileen and mcglue or something like that yeah i would agree as a bookstore manager i see some overlap in the uh, um customer they may that may buy both i uh, what impresses me about my year of rest and relaxation is how engrossing a relatively long novel can be that mostly just features a woman lying on a couch taking drugs. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's something, there's something, you know, I mean, it's a little bit like the mezzanine or uh, Malloy, you know, like some Beckett or something like that. That kind of yeah. the 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 non-action novel. Now with 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 say the Bells are the quite a bit more happens, right? Yeah, right. I mean, if, if it's a much longer period of time, there's much more movement. But then still, there's a there's a there's a tone. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a reason why why those books end up kind of being you know uh, on the same type of lists or whatever. A kind of you know a kind of buildings romance that, that's like built on a sense of ennui, maybe. Yeah, you know. I mean, uh, um, yeah, but they're both rad books for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Brian. Um, my next question uh, is: How can someone be both well-read and poorly educated. And as a follow-up question, uh, do universities offer a path to correct uh, this by allowing one to declare a major in literature? So I think being well-read is just meaning you've read a lot of books. Mm-hmm. You, you don't have to go to school, though, to do that, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I think part of education is, is not just what you learn, but the order in which you learn it. And the context in which you learn it and how that information is applicable, you know. Um, so, you know, for me, I was never a very good student, but I always read a lot of books. I mean, it, it, from from middle school on, I, I read quite a bit. And sometimes I read a little bit more erudite stuff. And sometimes I read trashy novels or whatever. Like when I was in middle school, I was a big fan of Piers Anthony. Mm-hmm. Or like in high school, Train Spotting was one of my favorite books or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, or I, I was really into uh, 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 Carlos Castaneda's Don, um, A Yaki Way of Knowledge or the whole Don Juan series, really. Um, read a lot about drugs, read a lot about bands, read a lot about criminals. 
Um, and so I think that's what I sort of mean. Um, there are people who are well-read, but <laughs> poorly educated. Um, and then too, in our society, uh, your education is um, contextual, right? Like, it's, I have an MFA in creative writing from the University of Texas Pan American. I'd imagine if somebody had a BA in creative writing from, I don't know, Brown, right? Like, nobody's going to think I'm better educated than that person. You know what I mean? Like, my MFA is not, from my school, is not as good as a BA from a reputable school, right? So I think there's that as well. Um, and then can universities uh, fix that problem? I mean, I suppose, let's say you go into, you know, let's say you're a heavy reader, and then you study um, uh, in in college and 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 you know focus on literature and it and it aligns a little bit more with what you're interested in educationally. Then yeah, I think that you would go through that more contextual type of education where you're learning about you know the history of literature and or um, you know like chronologically maybe how how literature works. I think maybe to a certain extent I did that. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, when I got my MFA, I definitely um, tried to study literature in a way that um, filled maybe something that I missed earlier on. Uh, I thought about the canon a lot, which, you know, typically people when they're in their master's programs aren't thinking about writing in that way. They're trying to think of, you know, maybe about, um, uh, ways in which, uh, you know, books were overlooked or way, you know what I'm saying? Or, or, or ways in which people were overlooked in, in, in writing it, or, or more complex, um, maybe even, um, maybe even, uh, controversial ideas. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so, which I, I mean, I, I thought of all that as well too. I focused a lot on Mexican American literature which you know dovetails with with that kind of concept of of, of, of higher education. Mm -hmm. However, um, I also tried to to learn about literature when I was working on creative writing. So I mean, I think there's ways in which you mean right. Education is a thing that goes forever, right? I mean, unless you're just shutting down for whatever reason, you're typically going to continue to learn. Yeah, absolutely. Um, those Piers Anthony novels was it the the Zant series? Yeah. absolutely <laughs> i wonder if those will ever uh come back like maybe the terry brooks series or robert jordan or <laughs> yeah i don't think so and the right. reason being is be because he seems pretty sexist by yeah, now right. you know what i mean like when yes. i read those books and now i'm like <laughs> dear word dude like right. so the very first um the very first piers anthony or the the first zant uh book is called a spell for chameleon Mm -hmm. uh, this kid, Bink, he goes on a journey to figure out what his magical properties are. One of the first stops he makes, he somehow sees a uh, what would be like a date rape trial, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. And the girl uh, uh, gets tr gets blamed for the entirety of the situation where you're reading it now. And it's like, oh, my word, you know, like it, mm -hmm. it, it it's uh, it doesn't hold up politically. The books are still fun to read. They're humorous and stuff, but I think some of the things that Piers thought <laughs> and wrote about, like females are completely and totally sexualized. 
there's this part where Bink is riding on a centaur, a female centaur, and they mm. have to jump over this wide gap and he grabs her by, you know, the breasts. And it's like, yeah. it, anymore, it's like, bro, that doesn't work. You know, mm-hmm. like, it's creepy. His books are a little creepy, though. When I was 13, I thought they were really cool. I don't know. Yeah, and maybe George R.R. <laughs> Martin or similar writers get away with some of that because they write women who are powerful as well. Um, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I'll be honest with you. I've read some of uh, R. R. Martin. I've watched all of Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Can't help but notice now that you think, you know, I mean, every female, almost every female who's in that series got naked. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so I, I don't know. I'd have to read. I'd have to read those scenes and really think about why maybe they get away with it. And some other people, it does feel a little more cringe. Mm-hmm. Um Though, you know, sometimes it's just as much as because it's more popular, so it's okay. Like, I've, I've noticed that plenty of times in, in pop culture. Oftentimes, things that are more popular can behave in a way that things that are less popular can't always. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Brian. Um, in Bad Foundations, you include text message threads. Um, we are currently in election season in the United States. And I want to ask in reference to a section like crawl space text thread number one, uh, would a text thread such as this uh, preclude its participants from running for president, uh, both in the pre-Trump and post-Trump eras? No, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, though it wouldn't be beneficial. I don't know. I'd say post-Trump, it feels like people can get away with saying more things. I remember when John Kerry was running for president and he said the word fuck to a uh, Rolling Stone and it was this huge issue. You know what I mean? Like I remember mm-hmm. people were like, how could that possibly happen? Mm-hmm. And then, then we have Trump now, of course, and it seems like everything is just on the table in terms of what you can say. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. That's a good question. I do think that, you know, what's kind of weird is that at some point in time, our electronic communication is going to be used to uh, um, punish almost everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't even know how you could have a revolutionary, right? Like, I don't know how you have a Mahatma Gandhi anymore because they'll have an internet search history. You know what I'm saying? And like, mm-hmm. will they have always looked for non terrible things? Um, yeah, so I don't know. I don't think, I, I mean, I don't think the uh, the information in it is all that shocking or, or it's not atypical or it's, you know, it'd be, it'd be a typical conversation to see within the, within that world. Um, mm, yeah, but definitely it would ruffle some people's feathers for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm just thinking back to the days when the most controversial thing was like when Mitt Romney was running for president and he had binders full of women. Um, binders full of women. I remember <laughs> the binders full of women. Yeah, that, I mean, that was a big thing. That was, was huge. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, I think to a certain extent, because of Twitter, we don't. Uh, hmm. I, I was reading something. Was it, was it either Dostoevsky or Tolstoy? But they were talking about like the more interactions you have socially, the less likely you are to like freak out about some social awkwardness, right? Mm-hmm. So like if you only hang out with people three times a year and one of those times you, you know was terrible and somebody said something to you that hurt your feelings, well, you're gonna replay that over and over again in your head. Whereas I think anymore we see the candidates so much by Twitter and stuff like that 
that they get to move on from the last dumb thing they did fairly quickly. And it seems like because we see them acting dumb so much that it's just like, oh, I guess it's okay. They're just, you know, that this is how they behave. Um, but I, but it seems like it, that wouldn't be the case, right? It seems like the more you can see them, the more you'd expect of them. But mm-hmm. it's paradoxical because it seems like the more we see them, the less we care. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's awkward. Yeah, sure is. Um, well, thank you for that answer, Brian. Uh, my next question, how can a house feel like debt and marital strife? Uh, I don't know. That's a great question, but it definitely can. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) I've definitely been in people's homes that are tense for Mm -hmm. reasons that you couldn't necessarily point out. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I don't mean like even just, you know, through the capacity of this. I mean, as a child, you'd go over to somebody's house, you know, maybe, and it'd be clean and everything, you know? But there would just be an undercurrent of something dark, <laughs> yeah, you know, like and I think, you know, for a house to feel like debt and marital strife, um, I feel like a home uh, that is upside down, you know, like if they don't necessarily have their finances together. And it happens to a lot of people at a lot of different times of their lives. Um, a house does feel tense when 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 um, when resources are scarce. Um, it, 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 and you know, but, but it's not even just a house, it's just people, but I don't know. It's interesting. I don't know how that's conveyed. I don't know why the emotions of a people can kind of infect the home. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But they definitely can. I don't know. You know, like, I don't think you could go into a house that was completely empty. You know, like if you were a cat burglar and you broke into somebody's house and there was debt and marital strife, I don't know that you could feel it if they were gone. Mm-hmm. But maybe, maybe mm-hmm. tones kind of hang around. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Thank you so much, Brian. Um, finally, and listeners, uh, it's early in the year, but this is the best novel of 2024 so far. I'm confident. Oh, thank that. you. And yeah, well, thank you. And uh, listeners, please go to explorebooksellers.com and order this book straight away. If you're listening to this podcast, you're going to enjoy it, I guarantee. Um But finally, Brian, uh, I told you we were going to circle back around to this topic before we took our break, and here we are. And I want to ask you about a quote in your novel, and that quote is, everyone who works in crawl spaces has either done it forever, just gotten to the game, or can't figure out how to break free. End quote. And I want to ask you, Brian, um, could you remove the phrase works in crawl spaces and replace it with works in any career or vocation? And the same truth would apply. And to bring the question back full circle to what we were talking about earlier um, in relation to this quote, why do you think so many people do place large parts of their personal identities and self-worths in their career, uh, which in the end, in most cases, is just the work they are doing for somebody else? Uh, I, absolutely. And, and I don't even think it needs to be occupation. I mean, I think that th- that kind of sums up how, everybody, right? It's one of those, like, it, it's a little bit of a non sequitur or a misnomer, right? Because, because it's, it, you know, it's applying a universal truth to a, a singular occupation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, to the second part of that, this kind of idea, like, why would people do something that they don't like doing or or, or, or why would they wrap up their their identity in, in an occupation? 
I think it's because it simplifies life. I mean, I, I, I do think that the purpose of life is to find a purpose. And I don't think it has to be the right purpose all the time. I think sometimes as long as you kind of just lie to yourself and tell yourself, oh, I have a purpose, it at least compartmentalizes portions of your life. So you can say, okay, right now I'm doing my purpose. And right now I'm doing my fun. You know, it's like avocation and occupation. You know what I mean? Uh I think that people need that a little bit. The, 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 you know, everybody's designed a little bit differently, but many people need to have a job that's not as fun for them so that when they're out doing the things that they enjoy, it just feels better. Uh, it's kind of typified in that statement, work hard, play hard. Right. Um, not, that's not everybody, right? Not everybody wants to work hard, play hard. And realistically, I would say the biggest differences between liberals and conservatives is that some people want to work hard, play hard. And some people want to, you know, uh, um, have a contiguous type of enjoyment, you know what I mean? Or like, I want my life to be sort of, um, uh, uh, standardized or like, you know, a vibe that I can maintain a vibe that I can maintain. Uh, and a lot of salespeople, they don't, they don't live with the vibe they can maintain. Do you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. they are not the same at work as they are away from work. You get that. It's different with like, say a professor, a professor teaching a, a university course is generally pretty similar to how they would be on a Saturday night, hanging out with people, but you get somebody who sells cars or, or, or works on uh, engines, you know, when they're away from their job, they're pretty darn different. Um, and so, you know, different people need different things. Um, I'd say that some people really enjoy uh, uh, life being uh, broken up and compartmentalized differently. And some people really enjoy kind of like um, uh, a more, I don't want to say simplified because that's, that, that diminishes it, but I, just more contiguous. Um, and then it's just part of our culture. We are our jobs. What do you do is one of the first questions people will ask. And in some ways, it's a little bit um, of a, an elitist question. But I do think in a lot of ways, it's a question that's basically just asking, tell me what you do so I can tell if you're happy or not. You know what I mean? Because like, it doesn't really matter what your gig is. If you're like, you know, I paint houses, <laughs> you know, it's a very different person than I paint houses. You know what I mean? So, but yeah, I don't know. I don't, I think we're always trying to figure out purpose. And one of the ways that seems easiest to figure out purpose is a job. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Brian. And thank you for writing this spectacular novel. Listeners, I've been speaking with Brian Allen Carr, author of Bad Foundations, which is published by our friends at Clash Books. Brian. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Brian Allen Carr for joining me. Copies of Bad Foundations can be ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com with free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this 
has been booking.